This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by 23andMe.com. With 23andMe's genetic service, you can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, or Africa. Visit 23andMe.com slash fool. That's the number 23andme.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, October 20th, and we're wrapping up our Pitch a Stock Week across all of the Industry Focus episodes. So today we're going to be throwing three tech stocks at you. Uh, I'm your host, Stone Lewis, and I'm joined in the studio by Thursday host, Sarah Priestley. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, do you have any fun weekend plans, Sarah? No. <laughs> Netflix marathon and knitting, probably. I don't think you meant to do this, but that is a nice that's a nice entree into what I we're going to be talking about I later mean today. I didn't to do that, no. Um, but well, yes, we will be talking about Netflix. That's the benefit of me doing the Friday show, is I always have that question to ask people, like, what are you doing this weekend? And do, do people have boring answers like me? Always. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm always like, cool, Like, give me something to jump off with here. <laughs> I remember I did a show one time with Taylor Muckerman, and I was like, hey, Taylor, like, how's it going? And he's like, good. So, you're not going to be knitting this weekend? <laughs> I, what I'm I will not be knitting, no. I have, I have a friend's birthday. Uh, I've got some errands that I need to do, some very fun errands. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to go around town in my roommate's car. Oh, wow. Try to knock them out. A car in D.C.? <laughs> Crazy Very kid. well to me. This is adventurous. I, know. I just ride around on my bike. Everyone else is like, "Yeah, I have a car." Duh. Like this. Is, what are you talking about, Dylan? Millennials. Anyways, uh, to bring it back around, um, listeners, we are doing this theme week, this pitch week, and if you've been listening all week, you kind of know the spiel at this point. Uh, but for folks that haven't caught the earlier episodes, uh, we had all of our writers in town recently for our annual writers conference, and we thought I'd take advantage of that and have some folks come in and do some pitches in the studio. And so we have three pitches. Uh, we'll be hearing about IBM from Tim Green, Netflix uh, from Danny Venna, and Mindbody from Rick Minares. And after each pitch, uh, Sarah and I are going to kind of share our thoughts on the stock and just add a little context, maybe some things that the writers didn't include. Um, so, with that in mind, Austin, you want to get us started and roll the tape from Tim's IBM pitch. Uh, I'm Tim Green. I write mostly about tech stocks, and I'll be talking about international business machines. Uh, On the surface, the IBM story does not look very exciting. Revenue has been slumping for the past five years, earnings are down, and the cloud computing business, one of its major growth initiatives, is being overshadowed by the two market leaders, Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure. But IBM has one big advantage, I think, is being overlooked. Entire industries rely on its products, and has long-standing relationships with major organizations in nearly every country. A few examples that drive home this point. 90% 90% of global credit card transactions are processed by an IBM mainframe, which IBM has been selling for more than 50 years. Uh, essentially, all of the world's largest banks use IBM products to run their infrastructures, and four-fifths of all travel reservations go through IBM systems. This broad base of customers has allowed IBM to generate more than $12 billion of free cash flow each year, even as it invests in new businesses that it hopes will return it to growth. Its cloud strategy plays to this strength. IBM is focused on enterprise customers and high-value services, not simply growing revenue as fast as possible by renting commodity commuting resources. Earlier this year, IBM signed a 10-year cloud services deal worth about $1.7 billion with Lloyd's Banking Group, a major UK bank. This will be a minor part of IBM's total revenue, but it represents exactly the kind of deal that will drive growth in IBM's cloud business. The bank is big with over a trillion dollars of assets, It's a long-standing IBM customer, and the deal represents a brand new revenue stream, with IBM not only hosting applications in its cloud, but also managing the migration of those applications. IBM has also struck deals to build platforms based on blockchain, the distributed database technology that underlies cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. 
It's working with a consortium of major banks to build a blockchain-based platform for tracking international trade transactions. And it's working with food companies like Walmart and Nestle to use the technology to add transparency to the global uh, food supply chain. Just like in its cloud computing business, IBM's existing relationships with many of these companies is a valuable asset, especially when dealing with such a new and unproven technology. None of this has helped IBM avoid a long slide in revenue, and it's hard to predict exactly when it will turn the corner. But with the stock trading for barely more than 10 times earnings guidance, I think the market is being far too pessimistic. So I think one of the important things to note with that pitch is we had our writers' conference last week. And so Tim recorded his pitch, and actually Danny recorded his pitch on Netflix uh, before both companies reported earnings. And and uh, Tim's IBM pick here looks even better <laughs> when you consider uh, the market's reaction to its most recent earnings report. Yeah, Tim looks stellar uh, after this. Um, but yeah, the the earnings report came in, um, and they had a beat on earnings per share at three thirty versus three twenty eight, which was expected. Um, and then their revenue was better than expected, but still. Uh, a decline for the past 22 quarters. So Tim touched on that in his pitch, but it continued. And that's the thing that we're kind of constantly watching with this company is where will the bottom be uh, for that for the revenue growth, and when will they kind of stabilize and actually return to growth? Um, I, I think people were pretty optimistic this most recent quarter because the decline wasn't as much as maybe they had thought. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is which is kind of tough to curb into a bull case. Yeah, absolutely. But really, I think what Tim's getting at here is. This company has been struggling for quite some time, but the floor is so high for this business because they are this entrenched player. They are already installed in so many businesses um, that basically you're getting this big business turnaround play at a fairly cheap price. And he mentioned valuation a little bit there. Stock is a trailing PE of 13.5. It's practically half what the market is trading at right now, and and that's even after they were up 10% following earnings. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you described it before we came in as that people wondering whether they've hit the bottom of the kind of earnings plateau. And I think that's exactly what people are expecting. Um, and there were some highlights in their earnings strategic imperatives, which is like their ana- analytics, cloud, mobile, security, all of their kind of new endeavors uh, grew 11% year over year. And that's 46% of uh, their revenue is from this segment. And particular bright spot within that was cloud uh, revenue, which grew 20%, which is actually incredible growth. So if you read through the earnings call for this company, you see them highlighting all these different growth factors, and you just mentioned a couple right there. Um, but for them to consistently struggle with growing the top line, that obviously means that part of their business is not working. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what is what's going on there, Sarah? Uh, so core technologies declined eight percent, and within that, you kind of have the technology services, um, which was down three percent. Global business services down two percent. A lot of this is is exactly as as it sounds. Their legacy kind of um, core infrastructure that they have established, and a lot of their long term contracts. Um, and part of the reason for this is just uh, it's harder to make money than it used to be. It's harder to, to get those margins. Um, and another reason is it's just so much more competitive, and those two kind of play together. Uh, but the other thing to note, and I'm sure that you were going to touch on this, but the big reason that the um, that their earnings came in so well was their effective tax rate, which we were talking about yesterday. <laughs> it's like like sub 15 percent. It's crazy. It's 11 percent. Yeah, it's the second lowest tax rate in the Dow Jones. Uh, so the only other company that has a lower tax rate on the Dow is uh, GE. And the way that companies do this, um, as I'm sure a lot of people know, is kind of through. Uh, I don't want to use the word loopholes, <laughs> but it kind of is loopholes. Creative accounting. Uh, creative accounting, yes. Um, so, kind of transferring uh, assets between business units, write downs. And in this case, it was uh, transferring IP between business units. One of the things that Tim didn't mention with his pitch um, that I think is pretty important with IBM is the dividend. 
And mm -hmm. so you look at this company, um, it has raised its dividend for, I believe, 22 straight years. So they are just short of that 25 that you need to be a dividend aristocrat, which is this kind of vaulted dividend status. If you want more on that, we have a piece, <laughs> as I'm sure Michael Douglas has told pretty much every industry-focused yep. listener at this point. Um, but really, even not being a dividend aristocrat, IBM is one of the bankable tech dividends. Um, and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. They're probably going to become a dividend aristocrat. I think they've been paying out a dividend for over 100 years. They just haven't consistently raised it long enough to be in that class. Um, I mention this because, to me, IBM is far more compelling, compelling as an income investment, not necessarily a growth investment. You're getting a 3.75% yield on IBM shares. Currently, that's not too shabby. But you know, we, we talk about how they have these growth drivers that are available to them. And yet, <laughs> the the struggle of the core business is is so much that uh, they haven't found that floor yet. Mm -hmm. And I worry that you know even when we get to the point where revenue stabilized, okay, but what is actual revenue growth going to look like? You know, is it going to be in the low single digits? Um, because if, if you're looking for growth investments, I don't know that IBM is the place to do it. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, and I think I do think that we shouldn't. Underestimate um, the kind of the base that IBM already has. It it is a huge company. It's the scale is massive. Like you said, reading through the earnings report, just trying to keep track of all the divisions that they have is difficult. Um, so they have this large, sticky core base of kind of software and hardware legacy products in across 170 different uh, companies. Just in the services business, they own 5.7% market share of this ginormous business uh, globally, which is double. Uh, the next, the person behind them. So I think while we shouldn't underestimate that, I 100% agree with you. Um, I think that there are so many companies now, Microsoft, uh, Oracle, Amazon, jumping on kind of these strategic initiatives around big data and machine learning. Um, it's going to be really hard for them to deliver the margins that they have uh, had before. And it's a company where you just have to, if you're really interested in them, you have to go into it knowing what you're getting, right? Yes. <laughs> like you're going to be getting, you know, kind of consistent dividend growth, um, maybe some share price appreciation now that the uh, the company started to turn around. But you know, at an 150 billion dollar market cap company, it's a lot harder for them to double or triple the way that you know a smaller, uh, medium size or you know small cap company might be able to. Yeah, and that's one of the issues for their clients too. And in, in the sense, it's just such a big, huge behemoth company um, that to try and understand how each of the divisions relates to one another, what services they need, it's just it's very complex. Um, and I think they're probably not leveraging a lot of the opportunity that they have between interdivisional kind of learning um, that they could be. This is all to say. We haven't talked about IBM all that much on the show, <laughs> and, and given what an incredible pitch that was from from Tim and, and how articulate and kind of clean cut and concise it was, uh, I need to get him on the show and make that happen. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> especially, I would love to hear that. especially as we see some big jumps from them, and, and the market clearly kind of maybe turning its favor on them a little bit and getting a little bit more interested in the stock. Um, why don't we look over at Netflix now, Austin? You mind playing that pitch from Danny? Hi, my name is Danny Venna. I cover tech and consumer goods stocks, and I'm here to talk about Netflix. Unless you've been living in a cave, you've probably heard of Netflix. Netflix is a pioneer in streaming video, and Netflix has evolved from delivering DVDs via little red mailers. Um, over the last few years, Netflix has grown to be a worldwide content distribution service. Uh, in, in the last few weeks, Netflix has announced a price increase, which was a subject of great interest to investors. Uh, the Folks that have a 799 plan will still pay the same. 
Those that have a $9.99 plan will have a $1 increase to a $10.99. And those with the $11.99 plan with additional uh, st concurrent streams and, and Ultra HD will bump up $2 to $13.99. So the most popular plan's gone up by a dollar. Um, now, investors believe that this is probably going to raise an additional $650 million dollars um, in domestic revenue, which will provide another $274 million in contribution profit. Uh, for the coming quarter, Netflix believes that they're going to increase their revenue by about 30%, and subs are going to go up by about 4%, with about 750,000 uh, increase in domestic subscribers and about 3.65 million in international subscribers. Now, there are those that believe that Netflix is going to have trouble duplicating the success that they've had in their U.S. market internationally. But if you go back and look at some of their earliest international markets, you'll see that that really shouldn't be a worry. Um, in Brazil, which they've been in since 2011, uh, they currently have a 77% penetration rate and a 90% uh, customer satisfaction rate of customers that say that they would uh, are extremely or very satisfied with the service. There's similar results in the UK with 49% penetration and 59% of the customers uh, say that they are very or extremely unlikely to cancel the service. Uh, Netflix has had a lot of success in uh, their original content. They recently won 91 Emmys, or I'm sorry, 91 Emmy nominations for their uh, original content. And so I think Netflix has a big runway going forward. There are a lot of reasons to like it. Uh, there are some investors who are afraid that the cash burn is going to catch up with the company. I don't think that's going to be an issue right now. They are spending a lot of money. They have negative cash flow, but they're doing that to build out a content library. I think once that content library is built out, then Netflix is, is uh, going to be able to ramp down that content spending. So I'm here to pitch Netflix, and I think it's a great opportunity for investors. So like Tim with his IBM pitch, Danny recorded his Netflix pitch <laughs> before they reported earnings. Uh, and like Tim's IBM pitch, Danny's Netflix pitch looks even smarter after the company <laughs> reported earnings. It does. They must have uh, future telling I don't know. Abilities. Whatever whatever they're doing, <laughs> it's working. Um, really though, like you know, Danny mentioned some of the numbers to expect with the earnings report, and you look at what actually happened and what the company delivered, and they really kind of blew the doors off of a lot of expectations uh, on the subscriber side. Um, on the top line, they beat as well. Um, a, a lot of really positive news around this company right now. Uh, one thing in particular that I'd really like to hone in on, he briefly mentioned this, is the price hikes, and um, you know he, he mentioned that the company raised prices for two of its uh, service tiers. None of that baked into the results that we saw in the most recent quarter. And really, we're going to start seeing that play into the financials in the next coming quarters. It's something that new folks uh, that sign up for the service will be paying, and I believe the old folks will be kind of grandfathered in over the next couple of months. Um, to me, that is a lever that while the company has just pulled it, they have the opportunity to continue to pull that going forward. I, I think there's room for them to increase the prices of their services, and that's a really easy way to boost the top line. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is the third price hike in three years. So I think that we're probably the rate of price increases is probably going to slow. Um, and 
as you said, I do think that they have plenty of room to keep increasing up to a certain point. Um, but we were talking before the show, they're going to add, is it 600 million? Something, to, something in that neighborhood, yeah, yeah. to earnings with this one move, which is incredible when you think about it. 600 I mean, uh, to the top line, to I believe. The top line, and, and I think uh, like Danny mentioned it was like somewhere in the neighborhood of like 250 million um, in contribution profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for just like a, you know, one, one switch. Uh, is is an incredible move for this company. And you think about just how strong their customer satisfaction is and, and how loyal their customers are, um, that's really not going to cause a lot of people to cancel their subscription. No, the average Netflix user spends 90 minutes a day uh, watching Netflix. I'm probably contributing I was going to say, I think, we're, I think we're both guilty of fueling that number. Um, something to, to watch with this company, Danny mentioned the international expansion stuff. In this most recent quarter, international paid subscribers were higher than domestic paid subscribers for the first time. So, um, if you're an investor, you'll love to see that because, uh, really, you know, while they are experiencing growth in the U.S., the international markets are where they're going to be able to live up to their current valuation. Absolutely, yeah, that's their growth runway, and um, I think that it's important to note that they're kind of expanding into all these different countries. Obviously, they're having a ton of success doing it. They are having to spend a lot on making localized content. Um, and I think it remains to be seen uh, how how that kind of plays out for them. But it is something to factor in. Uh, you can't just take necessarily uh, U.S. content and it work in every other country. I have to tap you as our like <laughs> resident foreign correspondent here. <laughs> um, you know, it is it is ubiquitous here in the mm-hmm. United States. I think everyone at least has access to Netflix, whether they pay for it or not. You know, and are and are lumped in with their parents or their roommate subscription or whatever. Um, is that the case in England? Uh, to some degree. I think Danny mentioned, I think it is like 50% penetration back home. It's TV is structured. We don't necessarily have as much cable. Um, and our basic kind of like, your, you know, if you didn't have anything, package is, is pretty good. So people are probably slower to, to adopt streaming. But um, yeah, 50% is still huge. And it's becoming increasingly popular. Um, I use my mother's account. So, uh, yeah, that shows you there's one person back home doing it. Wait, so do you have access to content that we that you shouldn't have access to because it's a British account? Or I guess they know that they, you're accessing it from the United States, Yeah, right? they know. So, yeah. my parents actually used to live in Belgium. The content that they got there was completely different to what you get in the UK, completely different to what I get here. So, you can I can kind of see the difference, uh, the spectrum of kind of uh, what they're offering in different places. And some of that's licensing deals and some of that's localized content, right? Yeah. Um, Looking at this company, uh, Danny mentioned it as well, and I think it's worth just kind of touching. I, one of my concerns is the the cash spend and the idea that the content party kind of has to slow down for them at some point. They yeah. have been throwing billions and billions of dollars into original programming, yeah, and it's what makes their platform strong. But it's also what's killing their cash flow. Yeah, they they had a 1.5 billion free cash flow loss for the first three months of this year. Uh, sorry, for the first three quarters of this year. Last year it was 1 billion. So that is a huge acceleration or a huge growth in that uh, figure. Um, I agree with you. I think that the a lot of people's bull thesis is based upon the fact that they're spending all this money um, to create this content. It's going to create this huge backlog, and eventually they can rely on the backlog and kind of feed it at a slower pace. Um, to some extent. I think that's true, but my concern is the same as yours. I wonder uh, how much, with competition from Amazon and Hulu, uh, HBO, Showtime, everybody trying to vie for the best content and the newest, you know, big blockbuster TV uh, series, how much they're going to be able to do that? Because yeah, at a certain point, they are not going to be spending theoretically six or seven billion dollars a year on original programming. It will, you know, scale down maybe to. A couple billion dollars, only a couple. Yeah, we we would hope, but then I mean, you do have to factor in the 
they have a legacy um, in the US that they don't have in other places. So they are, you know, content spending might not slow as much as people are expecting because other markets could blow up, you know, the way that the US has, um, and they have to spend a lot on content there. And and I think, you know, we we uh, we're talking about this content spend. It is important. It's attracting a huge amount of talent um, to the organization. You know, you've got like Orange Is the New Black, House of Cards, Stranger Things. Um, all of these shows that have been so successful, they're not just attracting us as consumers, they're attracting great talent in the industry. So I can see the trade off there. And at the end of the day, you know, this is a stock that has been absolutely on fire over mm-hmm. the last couple of years. It's it's been a great stock to own. And while we have these concerns about content spend, while we have some of these concerns about the international expansion, things like that, you look at the core product and the customer satisfaction is incredibly high. Um, I'm part of you know, <laughs> the, the paying subscriber base, and, and totally see the value that they're providing to people. And um, it's a company that's been really disruptive, and, and managed to basically create the space for themselves, and then innovate within the space. You know, basically deciding to make streaming available, and then uh, within the streaming market, saying, no, no, no like we're not going to just take reruns of The Office. Like <laughs> we're going to spend a lot of money on original programming because that's what makes our platform sticky. Um, you know, I think you look at management there and say they really understand what's going on in the space, probably more so than anybody else. Yeah. And and if you're a Netflix bull. That is a big part of your thesis. Yeah, and we're talking about IBM, you know, with the move to big data, and that's where everybody's going. It's kind of um, machine learning and old AI. Netflix is a prime example of this. They have thousands or millions, probably at this point, of hours of viewing time of data of what people's preferences are. You know, do they pause at this point? Do they fast forward? Do they lose them at a certain point in a series? And all of this is going to play into the content that they're going to create in the future. And there is a lot of competition, as we talked about, Amazon, Hulu, uh, creating their own original content. Their backlog isn't as large, so their data pool probably isn't as large at this point. So yeah, that's something that is a real kind of unique point. Yeah, they went from this point of basically using like data as like a recommendation mm-hmm. engine to then using data to kind of inform programming decisions. And you know, okay, like what kind of series should we be offering? You know, and, and that type of stuff. And so uh, the opportunities there are super interesting. Yeah. Uh, we have one more pitch for you guys, uh, but before we get over to there, just want to thank a uh, supporter of today's episode, 23andMe.com. 23andMe.com is a genetic service that can help you discover where your DNA comes from around the world. You can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, and Africa. With your 23andMe reports, you can explore your connection to the world in a whole new way by traveling to places that reflect your DNA. Visit 23andMe.com. That's the number 23andme.com slash fool. What will be your DNA destination? All right, we've got one more pitch, Sarah. Um, Austin <laughs> is already frustrated at me for messing up several ad reads, so we will we'll try to make the rest of the show somewhat short. Um, but we have a pitch from Rick Minares on, uh, on MindBody. And Rick is a longtime fool. Um, someone that has been writing for the site and working on some of our premium services for a long time. If you haven't read his writing, I think it's I think it's you should one you sh- one you should. Uh, he he covers a lot of really fun kind of interesting things, and I think in a lot of ways is kind of the uh, the standard of of foolish writing and, and kind of striking that right tone of accessibility and being very playful. And I think that comes through in his pitch. Um, Austin, you mind rolling that? Hi, I'm Rick Menards, uh, TMF Breaker Rick, uh, and I want to talk about MindBody, uh, ticker symbol MB. And this is one of the smaller uh, tech companies in the tech universe. It's about a $1.3 billion company. But MindBody has a pretty unique product in that they run this basically app and, and uh, software and cloud-based uh, platform for 
a lot of the wellness industry. Uh, I mean, I'm talking not just not not medical, but uh, yoga studios, beauty salons, uh, Pilates classes, and uh, all these small little independent uh, players out there. They sign up with MindBody, and then MindBody uh, delivers uh, leads. And it does so by uh, making the, the reservation process transparent. Uh, a lot of times, uh, um, when my wife needs to get her hair done, she'll call up her hair salon and say, "Oh, I need to, you know, I want Monica to cut my hair," uh, and then it becomes this whole hassle. My body's actually gotten rid of all that. It's a place where you can, uh, th- through the app or or through online, uh, you actually have access to any area, any participating person that's around there. And you can just pick, and it's transparent as to the availability, the, the, what they can do, their services. And what's cool about MindBody, they have nearly 60,000 companies that have signed up for MindBody. And this is a company that, even though they're small and they're still not profitable, they should be profitable by next year, uh, they have been able to, they grew their revenue at 31% uh, in the second quarter. And in the third quarter that ended uh, uh, back in September, uh, they're expecting, uh, their guidance was for revenue to grow 29% to 31%. So this is a company that's actually growing at a very healthy rate uh, compared to a lot of the, these other specialties. Companies and with MindBody, um, what's cool is that uh, they collect money two ways. First of all, is there's a subscription revenue to be a part of it, and services for the leads they deliver, sort of like an open table uh, with in the restaurant world uh, before it got acquired uh, by Priceline. But you have a case with MindBody where. They also make a little money on the payment side, which is actually a faster-growing part of their business, but still about a third of the revenue. Where MindBody is actually collecting money uh, when they're actually helping process payments. And these small companies, uh, they turn to a company they trust, and when they trust MindBody to deliver leads, and we're seeing revenue per subscriber, revenue per customer go up high. It go it's up about twenty-some percent over the past year. You have a case where companies trust these platforms, and there's a whole networking effect. So if you go somewhere and let's say, all right, well, I trust MindBody, I'm going to fire up the MindBody app because they really did a good job on, on, on getting a, uh, this massage I needed. And you're saying, hey, you know, I, I think I'd like to check out uh, this yoga studio. And it's right there. It's on the MindBody thing. So it, being part of the MindBody fa- family opens you up to other possibilities. So, yeah, I mean, the company, again, it's, it's not profitable yet. Uh, some analysts think it'll turn profitable by next year. Uh, the others think by 2019, but it's definitely coming. But right now, the growth is spectacular. And even though this is a $1.3 billion company, I don't expect this to be the next huge, uh, you know, $100 billion market company. All it has to do is double or triple in the next five years or so for you to make out uh, pretty well. And companies like this, that they're pretty much category leaders in this very thin fragment. Uh, really do pretty well on their own, or if not, they get bought out by a bigger company. So either way, I think MindBody's future is, is bright, and the stock's done really well over the past year, and I think it'll continue to do so. So that's uh, MindBody, uh, ticker symbol MB, um, and uh, Namaste. <laughs> is that not is that not like the most Rick yeah. way to cap something off? Yeah, it was great. <laughs> um, so I'm glad that Rick pitched MindBody because you know we got two. Mega cap companies, basically, mm-hmm. with with Netflix and IBM, and, and so it's kind of nice to give somebody, uh, our listeners here, something that maybe is a little bit lesser covered. And this is actually a space where Rick spends a lot of his time covering uh, for some of our premium services. So nice for him to bring some of that into our discussion here today. Um, Rick mentioned it in his pitch, but it bears repeating: MindBody is a small cap company, so the growth runway is significantly longer for them. Um, but it's also a little bit riskier, right? You know, mm-hmm. as, as someone starts to grow and really get a meaningful chunk of a business and start making some money off of a very particular segment, other people tend to perk up and kind of notice yeah. <laughs> that there's a big opportunity there, uh, and competition might swoop in. But um, they are kind of a niche player, which which he talked about. Uh, they are this software as a service company, and uh, because of that, you look at their financials and. You know, while they don't pull in a ton on the top line right now, about 160 million over the past 12 months, 
they command pretty high margins. Uh, they, they grossed 112 million on that 160 million over the past 12 months. So, typical software business here, where uh, it's very scalable and, and the margins are great. Um, what do you think about this kind of fitness market in general and this wellness market in general, Sarah? Um, I think, I mean, we were joking yesterday about millennials um, as part of a Halloween costume for our team. Um, and I think that really plays into kind of this whole um, generational move. Uh, millennials like boutique fitness classes apparently more than we like gyms. Um, and we're willing to spend a bit more on that. So it's kind of this uh, secular transition uh, that the company is tapping into. I think boutique studios now make up 42% of the health club market, and that's a $24 billion market. So there's a huge opportunity here. Uh, whether it stays around remains to be seen. Um, but right now, I do agree there is definitely an opportunity. I, I think people who go to boutique fitnesses, they uh, boutique classes, sorry, they spend about 1.9% of their income on those. People, whereas people before who were you know, just attending uh, the standard gym, it was uh, under 1%. And it's kind of this like lifestyle mm-hmm. brand type thing, right? I mean, it's it's uh, in some ways like a lot of these classes are like a place to be seen or like yes. a place to go with your friends. Yes, I'm not a part of this. I don't. <laughs> I, I work out alone in the basement of the of the of Fool HQ's gym, um, so I don't know. But I, I, I get the sense that at least uh, you know we're talking about like bar classes or um, yoga classes, things like that. It's it's as much a social thing as yep. it is. Um, why you're there for wellness. Mm-hmm. And Vince and I on the CG show on Tuesday, we've talked about this before. There's like a whole uh, shift, as you said, towards kind of lifestyle fitness. Um, and a lot of that is showing in kind of the athleisure industry and everything else. It's having ripple effects. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of analyst concerns across this broad spectrum is just how long it's here to stay. I do think um, that honestly, it's it's a change that will remain for a while at least. Um, and obviously, my body's really making the most of it right now. Subscription and services grew 29%, payments revenue up 37%. They're, they're clocking incredible growth. Um, they're growing their number of subscribers, and importantly, they're growing their high-value subscribers, um, which is kind of a key metric to look at when you if you consider in this company. And we, we talked about the trend here generally. Something that I I, I kind of look at the space. And I'm like, I don't think people are going to get less healthy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's possible it's unless possible. unless we invent the pill that yeah. makes it. You know, you don't need to work out at all. <sighs> That'd be amazing. That'd be great. It'd be a beautiful <laughs> thing. But but I think that um, wellness has become so much a part of like the modern consciousness in a lot of ways that I don't really think it's going anywhere. Something that I do like about what they do, um, as opposed to investing in like a pure play like fitness company like a Soul Cycle or mm-hmm. something like that is. It doesn't really matter what the hot, like workout style type thing is, whether it's bar, whether it's spin classes, whatever. Like they can provide for that market. You know, if it's yep. mixed martial arts, they can do that too. Um, so, so it's a little bit less tied to the specific flavor of the week within wellness, and more of just people are are going more to boutique fitness classes. And this is a company that helps those types of businesses really just organize everything and get it done. They support a whole bunch of different things. Um, like I said, you know, yoga, they do personal training, wellness, boxing. Basically, if you can book it, they also, they also do haircutting, oh, really? <laughs> apparently. <laughs> um, so, so it's a little bit all over the place. There are some growth opportunities for them into other segments. And in terms of the suite of stuff that they offer, it's online scheduling, marketing, point of sale, client management software, staff resources. So they're, they're kind of building out their functionality and, and what they offer to these businesses. And the more and more, you know, I've talked, actually I talked about this on Monday's show with Michael that I did, the more and more you can build out your offering uh, if you're a business provider to the point where you become a one stop shop. The more compelling you become to customers, yeah, and, and and it seems like they're doing that absolutely. And, and you said it's um, you know these software companies. If you look at like Square, Shopify, they create um, 
a platform that's very easy for small to medium sized businesses, uh, which is a huge market and probably a huge underserved market. Um, and they really capitalize on that. And as you said, they offer just a kind of a, a ton of things. You can create your own or you, you can create your own design um, in their app interface. So you kind of continue that brand uh, all the way through in the customer experience. And you know, they're, as you said, they're kind of brand agnostic, um, gender agnostic too, because a lot of these fitness uh, places skew, tend to skew to the women. Um, but, you know, as you said, fitness, martial arts, all those kind of things that men are picking up a bit more. Something I was surprised with with MindBody was hearing the company, hearing the pitch, I was like, okay, like how big is this market really? Um, they currently serve about 60,000 businesses. Management estimates that the total market size is about 4 million businesses. So their penetration is super low in the addressable market that they see. You know, obviously they won't realize all of that, but that is to say, there's a big, big opportunity out there. And uh, I know that recently there's been some focus on their number of business subscribers, basically, uh, and look at their their users. And the company has kind of focused on fo- basically their higher value businesses, kind of working away from their their low value and spending a little bit more time with folks that are um, making use of more of their functionality and, and kind of bringing in more money for them. And, and I think that, you know, obviously short term, that's a hit to numbers like, you know, you, the businesses that you support, but, but longer term might be a really good move for the business because uh, they are not spending, you know, a ton of time on, on low performing businesses that really aren't doing all that much for them. Mm-hmm. And an average revenue uh, per per customer is $244 a month, which is pretty high when you think about it. And I think that as they transition to these kind of more, I think 13% growth in high value subscribers was what they achieved last quarter, compared to 6% subscriber growth growth overall. So they are obviously tapping this market much more. The thing you worry about with this, uh, and, and I've seen some other software providers kind of run into this trap sometimes, is you provide this service uh, you know, to a business and you grow with this business. And then the businesses grow to the point where they decide to build out their own infrastructure mm-hmm. for those things. Um, you know, this very famously happened with Twilio, the um, app developing business uh, that provided a lot of the communication software for Uber. And you know, Uber was one of their big clients. And at a certain point, you know, Uber said, "Well, I think we're going to handle this on our own. I don't think we need you guys to do this anymore." And so they, they lost a very big book of business because of that. So, so the pro is these types of businesses scale with the companies that they support and they enjoy the same successes it's a symbiotic relationship the con is if they get really big you know they they go from being a, a local chain with a couple locations to a, a national chain they may decide you know what we're going to handle all this software stuff on our own yeah and, and the kind of um the con to your con if you like is uh if you look for um shopify a lot of the companies that they have that have grown into, you know, not not huge companies, but good medium-sized companies with a lot of cash flow, um, have remained with them because their platform is so sticky. Square again is exactly the same. They're growing their medium-sized businesses um, with a lot of revenue growth, and I think. You know, out of the sixty thousand that they have, if you consider that maybe five percent become these huge national chains, and and leave the platform, that's still a huge groundswell that you can kind of maximize. Yes, I, it is not a massive, massive risk, but one that I just wanted to highlight. Okay, sorry, but I but I think I think the con to your con was a good walk back on, on my my fear mongering. I didn't mean to <laughs> no, to strike sorry. fear into mind body shareholders. Well, I will not be invited back on this. Show. <laughs> that's what we learned from this. I think that's the perfect note to end on. You will not be invited back. On the show, um, this is this is great. I loved having you on. No, it was great. Thank you very much. A lot of fun. <laughs> Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. 
If you have any feedback or questions for us, you can shoot us an email over at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. And I will say, I personally manage the Industry Focus Twitter account. So if you have ideas, you can tweet them at the Twitter handle for the show. You can also tweet them at Wiley Lewis. Um, I am I am super responsive. Much like Michael Douglas, while I'm not as desperate in my pleas, <laughs> I'm equally responsive. Uh, if you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today and for getting into the studio early during the Writers' Conference to help make all these recordings possible. He's the MVP this week, for sure. (laughs) Uh, For Sarah Priestley, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and fool on.